If you're new to Element, welcome. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room look like this. On the inside on the left, you're going to get a half-page recap of what we talk about today. On the right-hand side, you're going to get questions you can ask your friends, your family, your gospel community about. On the back, you're going to get the verses we cover. And really, we're just going to be going through the rest of Chapter 2 today. On the bottom, you can take some notes. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is not called Church Center, by the way. Uh, it is called Uversion. Once you download Uversion, <laughs> hey, did you guys see a new drummer today? <laughs> so I just figure it's easier to do that and just be like, let's go. <laughs> Uh, if you download version, it just says Bible when you download it. Uh, click on More and then Events. will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is James chapter 2, verse 14, and it says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We're going to talk about that today. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who say we have faith and then live that faith out. That you would be glorified by what we say and what we do, but we'd also understand that we are saved by your grace alone. And so this morning teaches what it means to live that out in a way that reflects the great salvation that we receive. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is week the book of James, we get to double digits today. And what we're going to cover, I, I'm going to try to go through this a little bit slower. I'm going to try and talk a little bit slower. I'm going to look at my notes a little bit more than I, than I typically do because I want to make sure I stay in line with where we're going. Uh, the things we talk about today have been debated for centuries in church history. And this morning, I'm going to answer all those for you so the debate will be over. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody appreciates that. Uh, and, and, and it's a lot. And I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, but there is a direction that James goes here. And many times it would be easier not to talk about what he talks in these verses today, but I think it's really important for what he said so far. If you have a Bible, you can open to James chapter 2. That is on page 655 if you have an element Bible. And we have looked so far at suffering and joy and steadfast and our high position and our low position, our hope in who God is, the true calling that Christ has placed in our lives, that salvation is found in Him and no one else. And so we talked about last week a bit that where James goes after helping us to understand that we are saved by grace, now he starts really poking and prodding into our lives to make us ask the question, do we truly belong to Christ? Do we truly believe what we say we believe? And that's going to be a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow because many times we just want to say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then we never want to think about that again. James is asking, do we truly have faith? Do we truly follow through on what we say we believe? And so that's supposed to lead to some serious introspection in our lives and asking questions. And today there's a lot of people who do not understand how we are saved, that we are saved by Christ's work for us. Uh, he dies for our sin. He brings us to himself, but many people think that we are saved by how we care for other people or a certain political bent or certain morality. There's a whole theology today called liberation theology, which is where you look at how you think God's working in the world and you become a part of that, and that's salvation. James has done his best to show us that we are saved by Christ's work alone. And as we go through our trials, it's meant to bring us back to a place where we understand that. But the verses we start with today can be seen in a couple. 
couple different lights, one of which is that we are saved by our works. And we're not, James is not saying that, so I do kind of want to give you the ending up front before we talk about it so you don't think I'm going somewhere that I'm not. I am not saying, and James is not saying that we are saved by our works. James is not adhering to legalism. James is going to say that faith alone saves us, but it really is a certain kind of faith. And he will tell us that faith will produce works in our lives. The works do not save us, but a faith that does not begin to live out in real ways in the world around us doing certain works, and I'll define works in just a moment, as a faith that will only deceive us and cannot lead to the fullness of life that God intends us to live in. So if you want to write down a very controversial thing I'm going to start with is this. Faith without works is useless, cannot save, is ineffective, and is dead. Okay, let's talk about that. I'm glad you're ready to go. So we're going to start here, James 2.14, and we are really just going to walk through the rest of the chapter this morning. So this is how it starts. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So James starts with what is called a Greek rhetorical argument. He sets this thing up, and then he's going to answer the question. Kind of like if you're growing up and your mom is like, what'd you do? She doesn't really care because she doesn't want an answer. She knows what you did. This is kind of James in the Greek rhetorical argument. So so Douglas Moo talks about this contradiction that some people see between the Apostle Paul and James. The Apostle Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that you are saved by grace through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a work of God. And they say, but James's words say the exact opposite. And so Moo kind of writes to help us understand this. He says this, Paul denies any efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. It's the idea that James and Paul are not at odds. Paul is fighting against an entire tradition that has said, you follow the law, you do all the right things, and God has to love you. God has to give you these things. You do these things, and that's how you're saved. And James, on the other hand, is fighting against a light faith, which minimizes the necessity of works after following Christ. I got my fire insurance. It doesn't matter what I do with the rest of my life. And so what Paul says is works cannot bring you to Christ. Our works do not save us. But James says, after we come to Christ, what we do is imperative in how we live. Uh, Kent Hughes says there's this old comic that people used to have for the church light. There's like a church sign out front. It says, the church light, 24% fewer commitments, home with a 5% tithe. Tithe means 10, by the way. Haha, <laughs> supposed to be funny, whatever. Uh, the 15-minute sermon, only eight commandments, your choice, just three spiritual laws, everything you always wanted in a church, and less. And that is what James is fighting against. He's fighting against that church light mentality because that's worshiping us. It's not worshiping God. And so James is not saying, here's the list of things you do in order to be saved. Like sometimes I think we all have a little internal legalist that if God just tell me the things to do and I'll go and do those things. I, faith that works is dead. I don't want to be dead. Give me the list. Wake up at 5 a.m. or 4 this morning. Uh, learn how to play the organ. Be a greeter. Have to be nice. Whatever it is, you tell me the things and that's what I will do. James is is not arguing that faith or that works must be added to faith because if he did then the cross of Christ would be useless. What he is talking about here is the understanding of the gospel, what Christ brings into our lives and then how we begin to live that out. This is not about the law. This isn't about a bunch of rules that have been made up and God's like, "Oh, you made a zero. Try again." I got to tell you, we are always going to make a zero. In our flesh we will never measure up to the law that God has placed in the Old Testament. 
Testament. One of the reasons we're told that the law even got placed there were for, for us to realize we can never measure up to the law. And this is why our righteousness is not found in us. It's found in what Christ has done for us. Our righteousness comes from Jesus. So James is not arguing that works must be added to faith, but rather his argument is a genuine biblical faith in our lives will inevitably be characterized by works. Now, this is like someone who makes a faith claim. If someone says he has faith, that is a claim. Someone is claiming, I'm a believer. I follow this Jesus. And so James is like, okay, so what does that look like in your life? And this is why it's important to talk about what faith is, what faith means. And faith is not some nebulous belief inside of you that you muster up enough emotions around. And once you've got enough emotions around it, you'll believe something that is untrue is actually true. That's not faith. The word faith literally translates as the word trust. We trust God for who he is. We trust God for what he has said. We trust God for what he has done in Jesus. And that true faith trusts God, meaning then we will start to obey him. We will start to listen to the things that he has said. And if we do not trust God, if we do not seek to listen to God, if we do not obey him even imperfectly, then we do not actually trust God. And that's kind of a bold statement, but that's James's argument. And it is why I said much of the book of James will help us see if we really have trusted Jesus or not. And when James here will talk about the law, he's not talking about the Old Testament law. He's not talking about the Torah, the Ten Commandments. He will talk about love, this royal law, and that's what it is from Christ's perspective. And so if you wanted to define works from James's perspective, works is this. It is loving God and loving others. It is a life lived out, loving God first, and then loving others. And James's words will reflect a lot of what Jesus says. And I think I might have said this last week or not, but I probably stole it somewhere. But in our lives and how we live daily, God is looking to move us, to progress us, to look more and more like him. He's not looking for perfection. Now, we, in Christ, because of what he has done, we are told in the book of Hebrews that God has made perfect forever in God's sight those who are being made holy. So day by day, God progresses and moves and changes us to look more like his son. No one, though, in our lives is going to perfectly love God and perfectly love others. Faith without works is dead and ineffective and is useless. And yet right here, I think every single person in this room, we could say, I have not loved God and I have not loved other people like I should have even this last week, even maybe today, even maybe in the last hour because of this time change thing, you know, all of us. And this is why the gospel is good news, because we are not saved by our work. We are saved by Christ's work that he did on our behalf. But we are a people who are still called to live forward progress in our faith as we trust and live and work with God himself. So how does James relate this? After he says that intro, this is what he goes into, James 2.15. So if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good, and that word for good there is the word benefit, what benefit is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So he says, you need these works in your life that show your faith. And how does he directly relate that to you? To those around us who would be considered the least of these, to those who are in need. Because when he says here, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, he's not talking about designer clothes. He's not saying this brother or sister in the body of Christ, he doesn't have all the designer things like they shop at the Walmart and you shop at the Macy's, so you better help them to shop at, at the Macy's. He's not saying they're not fashionable. He's saying that person is part of the covenant community of faith, 
and they have then fallen on hard times in their life where they are not able to survive from day to day. They're naked and they can't eat. So who is supposed to come alongside of them and love them as God's hands and feet? We are. We are. It's like that guy over there. No, we are. It's all of us are supposed to do that. And so James then gives these two examples. First one is the poor man. So the poor man is supposed to receive blessings from the Lord. That is a destitute person on tough times. Tough times does not mean that you can't afford your cable bill or can't eat your dispensary hall this week or something like that. It's a person who is unable to eat, unable to clothe themselves or their family because of their situation. They are meant to be ministered to and encouraged by and loved on those who say they have faith. And then you have the wealthy person. This is the one you're supposed to be helping. And wealthy doesn't mean you got a mansion in the hills. Wealthy means you have food in your fridge for tomorrow. And this person is hungry today. So you take that and you go and you help that hungry person now. This wealthy person has a little bit extra and they are used by God in profound ways to minister to the hurting among them. Why? To show our faith, to show who God is by how we live out our lives because our God came to us when we were destitute and lonely and hungry and tired and afraid and our God saved us. We are told that God blesses us to be a blessing. And this is one of the reasons every week at Element, when I wrap this whole thing up, I talk about the different ways that we worship. And one of them is I talk about our giving. And you probably get tired of hearing about it. But I tell you every week about this because we too easily forget. If we have been given to by God, we in turn become a people who give as well. We're to be generous. We have not been given to by God to constantly increase the size of our house or the size of our car. Not that you can't have a nice house or a nice car, but we've been blessed by God to live an open-handed life, and that shows that we are not enslaved by our blessings, but we are grateful for them. And when our faith then becomes static and doesn't give, we have a tendency to become what one writer calls spiritually constipated. You're all backed up. The older you get, the more you'll understand what that means. Too often, we use spiritual language to people in need. Oh, God bless you in your nakedness, but we never lift a finger to help. Oh, you're going to freeze tonight? You don't have any food? Well, I'll pray that you and your kids find food, that you, don't, that you don't go hungry. I'll pray God blesses you. And James says, faith without works is useless because you're not being God's hands and feet in the world. And if you were living as God's people, you would step into that and you would help those people. Now, yes, I know, there are some people out there who just long to bilk the system, and that is why you have a little bit of discernment. There are also times when there are people you want to help, and you really try, and for some reason you can't. A couple months ago, we had a lady who needed a place to live, and we looked, and we asked around, and we couldn't find a place. And in the end, that person got mad at us because we did not find them a place to live, even though we tried. Maybe we could have communicated a little better how hard we were trying, but in the end, it was like, you guys aren't doing enough for me. Guys, we are called to help, but sometimes you can only do so much. This also doesn't mean that every Christian is meant to go and live in a poor community, but the church has to say some of us have been called to do that, and the rest of the body gathers around that person, and they support them so that we have a mission and a ministry in those places where we can. Jesus speaks about the reality of our hearts in Matthew 25, verses 40 to 43, and he'll talk about these things called the sheep and the goats. It's like one are followers, one is not. And the way you tell the difference is one actually reaches out to the poor and the powerless. 
James doesn't say we know we have faith by how we stop swearing and smoking and drinking. And I know in a lot of churches, that's how you prove it. But what he says is we know we have faith by how our hearts are drawn to and how we help those who are less fortunate around us. He calls us into a new life. Matthew chapter 25, again, Jesus is talking about those sheep and goats. It's talking about how we love the broken. And he is not saying only social workers go to heaven. But this is like when Jesus says you judge a tree by its fruit. You have a fruit tree, you should have fruit on that tree. Fruit doesn't grow without being connected to a tree. And if you have a healthy tree, that fruit is naturally going to grow. Uh, if, if a tree runs around, a tree is like, oh, I'm alive, I'm a great tree, I'm alive, it's, I'm so wonderful, but it has no fruit, it is a dead tree. We have this apricot tree in the backyard. For the last four or five years, it has had no apricots. And my wife is like, no, don't cut it down, it's alive, it's a great tree. I'm like, it is a dead tree. I'm going to chop that thing down and plant a new one. Faith without works is dead. Just being biblical. Jesus and James are not saying that caring about the poor is what gives us salvation. He is saying that caring about the poor is what shows that we have understood our own salvation. And it is so weird to me that in certain aspects of conservative politics, and if you know me, I'm pretty conservative in my political views, but many times conservatives think that indifference towards the poor is not as bad as something like adultery or homosexuality. And we get everything so out of place that we think people's sexual lives, not that it's not important, but we put that above our call to love other people. And they're both important. They're both important. Many Christians who are involved in politics today lose a whole lot of credibility for that reason, that we don't care for those who God called us to care for. And James addresses this. See, you thought it wasn't relevant. Totally relevant. Verse 18, but someone will say, so again, someone is claiming faith. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. So this is a claim someone makes. So James responds, we show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now, I, I like what one person wrote about this. They said, there is not a demon in all the universe who is an atheist. They try to convince you to be, but they are not. Every demon is a monotheist and a Trinitarian. And when they think of God, they shudder. That means bristle up like a frightened cat. And so James here interjects an antagonist into the letter to help us see the difference between our words and what we claim and our reality. Now, we don't know if this person was someone that James actually knew. Somebody said this, or he set up a straw man. It could go back to that you know, rhetorical argument that's there. But James says, let's say, hypothetically speaking, there's a guy. And this person would say that faith and works are two separate things, and they never need to be connected whatsoever. So James is going to then dissect that, and he's going to talk through that. Because again, our goal is not works. Our goal is loving Jesus, which results in changed lives. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, who thinks that faith and works are two separate things, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, that doesn't sound like works, right? And he was called a friend of God. And he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Interesting thing in the Bible, the only place where faith alone actually sits together like that is right there in that verse. Verse 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute, the what? 
the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James's argument is faith and works, they're not two separate things. One naturally flows into the other. James's argument is, okay, you have faith, that's great. Show me. Show me what it looks like. Without trying to sound judgy, we have too much of that in the world right now as it is, but some people will say that Christians are hypocrites. And you know what? They're right. We are. We are all a bunch of hypocrites. But I would also say the inconsistency between what one claims to be and what one actually is is typically more of those who are outside of Christ than inside. I'll give you an example. Uh, today, atheists are loving to hold up other atheists as great moral examples. And many times they are, but many are not because their worldview doesn't support any reason to actually be any better. So you go back to the 1700s when this whole thing started. There's a philosopher, his name is Rousseau. And Rousseau is considered to be the first intellectual who called himself the friend of all mankind. Even modern atheists today will point back to Rousseau and they will say, look at his life, he's so amazing. But if you actually look at his life, his life tells a different story. Rousseau said of himself that he was born to love, and he says he taught the doctrine of love more persistently than most preachers. And he says of himself, he says, whoever examines with his own eyes my nature, my character, my morals, my inclinations, my pleasures, my habits, and can believe me to be a dishonest man is himself a man who deserves to be strangled. Ooh, that sounds really nice. Sounds like politics today, right? You disagree with me? You deserve to die. So how did the self-proclaimed lover of mankind live his life? Well, uh, his dad didn't mean anything to him except an inheritance. His long-lost brother didn't mean anything to him except to certify him dead so he could get his family inheritance. Rousseau had five children. He didn't name any of them. And as soon as they were born, he put them into an orphanage. It's, it's in French, and I'm not going to pronounce it because I'd sound horrible if I tried to, but an orphanage. Interesting thing about that orphanage, it was founded and run by Christians places those kids are. Now, orphanages in that day, they were so underfunded, two out of three babies died the first year from malnutrition. Only seven or 14 of 100 children lived to be age seven, and it is believed that none of Rousseau's children survived. So Rousseau, the self-proclaimed lover of mankind, did not record the dates of his children's birth or give them names. Jesus coined the term hypocrite in regard to our inconstant lives, believers and unbelievers. As believers claiming to follow Christ, our lives should begin to look different. So James gives a couple examples. Now, I want to talk to you about this word faith and trust and, and what it means. I'm going to give you an analogy that has been used numerous times, numerous times. And this is good. Okay, everybody's sitting down. So everybody came into this room and you sat down in a chair. That's faith. That's trust. You walked in and you naturally thought this chair is going to hold me. And so you sat down in a chair. That is how our faith in God is simply supposed to be lived out. We trust him enough that we simply live how he calls us to live. Now, my wife will go out and she will buy chairs at some yard sales or estate sales or get them out of an attic somewhere here and there. And sometimes she will say, it's a great chair. Sit in this chair. And I'll be like, don't, please don't make me sit in that chair. Because if I sit in that chair, I'm going to go through that chair. And then we're going to end up in the ER. And you don't want to go to work on your day off. We, we don't want to do this. right? But you come into Element and our chairs are made out of steel. And you realize, this chair is actually going to hold me if I sit down in it. I have no problem sitting in an element chair. And James is saying, you believe the chair will hold you. Have a seat. I'll show you I believe the chair holds me by how I sit down. 
And he says, someone clever will come along and they will say, I intellectually and mentally believe what is doctrinally true about the person and the work of Christ. I don't need works. I don't need to sit down in that chair. And James will say, I believe what is doctrinally true about the person and the work of Christ, which is why I love others. And it's why I will sit down in the chair. It's why he blasts with both barrels. You believe God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe that's a chair, so to speak, and they shudder. So let me say another controversial statement. Are you ready? Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. Intellectual assent to correct doctrine is not salvation. How do I know that? Because of the Pharisees. How do I know that? Because the demons believe, and they're not saved. Some of the meanest people I have ever met know a whole lot of doctrine, and it just their hearts are crusty, and they're mean, and they're terrible people. It's like they use doctrine as a club to whip and beat people into submission. They are full of pride because they think they know the Bible better than you, better than me, better than James, better than God himself. But they have no real love for God and other people. They are just like the Pharisees who had all kinds of intellectual assent to doctrine, but they didn't live it. Jesus will even say to his followers, he will say, listen to what the Pharisees teach because what they taught was right. He says, but don't do what they do. Don't do what they do. James is going, you believe God is one. Congratulations. Even the demons believe that, and they are not children of God. Demons probably have better theology than me or you. Yet I have awaiting for me by faith alone what they cannot fathom, which is an eternal relationship with the loving creator of the universe. Demons have correct doctrine, but not saving doctrine. How do we know? Because they don't give, they don't love, they don't serve. James is writing to Jews. And so he is using this analogy of Abraham. Abraham makes perfect sense. All the Jews look back to their patriarch, Abraham. Yes, Abraham's the great guy. The, the crazy thing is that he talks about Rahab the prostitute. It's like, why Rahab the prostitute? We Jews have songs about Father Abraham. We even have a song about Father Abraham for little kids. And it goes, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. There are no songs about Rahab the prostitute. Mr. Rahab had many clients, and many clients had Mrs. Rahab. <laughs> oh, that sounds so bad. But seriously, we don't have songs about her, and yet that woman right there, this is a beautiful story in the lineage of our own salvation. So you have Abraham. Abraham reveals that he trusted God by metaphorically sitting down in this chair, and he trusts God in an impossible task and situation. You can listen to it uh, from our Genesis series. It's online. But Abraham trusted God. So how do we know? He takes his promised son up onto a mountain and had faith that the word of God would come to its fullness when in all human perspective it looked like he would lose his son. And he has his son back. And he comes back down this mountain. He was fully obedient to God. He trusted that God was able. And it is really interesting. After Abraham goes up on this mountain and comes back with his son, you don't see any of the foolishness of Abraham's earlier life. He doesn't walk around anymore going, that's not my wife, that's my sister. He never says that again. And then you look at Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho. No little girl dreams of growing up to be a prostitute unless something evil has happened to them. And so Rahab's in Jericho, uh, where women at that time were already treated as less than second-class citizens. And the Israelites have gone through their 40 years in the wilderness. They're going into the promised land. And the first place they're going is this place called Jericho. And they send some spies to check out the city. 
And Rahab catches wind of this. And she starts thinking, salvation's coming. God's people are coming. And the city, when they hear about this, like, we've got to find those spies. We've got to capture them. We've got to kill them. And what does Rahab do? She finds the spies. She hides them. She redirects the pursuers. What is interesting is Rahab put her faith in God. And these spies put their faith in her faith. She has a very small faith and that this God would usher in something new, a new beginning for her. And Rahab will end up in the lineage of Jesus Christ. I mean, part of our own salvation. This is, a, this is a step of faith and trust. What does James say? For the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Again, what are those works? That we love God first. And we love others as he calls us to because God loves people. So he calls us to do that. So if someone comes along and they say, well, I'm a Christian, that's their faith claim. But they have no love for God that leads to love for others, even imperfectly executed, we should stop calling ourselves a Christian. I think one of the most miraculous baptisms are those kids who come from Christian homes and they get baptized. Because the testimonies that start, I grew up in a Christian home. Because those kids tend to learn like the right things to say, the right things to do. They have a language. They have a behavior. They know how to fit right into it. And it's easy to play the part and not have a heart that loves Jesus. And when they come to the place to say, no, I understand my own sinfulness. I understand that I needed to be saved that I cannot save myself by all the good things I do, and they actually understand that, I think that's beautiful. I also love the story of like drug addicts and prostitutes and all that, but they usually know they're a mess. They do. I, they know their life is leading to heartbreak. It makes sense for someone to be like, yeah, I've been on the meth for 10 to 15 years. My life was a total mess, and Jesus saved me. And we applaud that. We're like, yes, that's so amazing. But for Christian kids to come to that same place and realize in their goodness they need to repent of that as well, that's huge. That's huge. And I'm not saying you don't pour into your kids and read the Bible and pray with them. What I'm saying is they need to honestly see your life lived out in faith in front of them. That you don't have to be perfect. And when you mess up or yell at them or yell at your spouse or yell at your friends and your, and your life kind of melts down, you show the repentance in front of them so they see what real life looks like. That you don't have to have it all together. That God rescues us even in the midst of our darkness. James wants us to examine our lives. This really hard look. Do we believe what we say we believe? Because there are those who say a claim to faith, and yet they are either not connected to community or they are. Maybe they're active in a church. They say the right words, and yet they have no love for God. That's what he's going towards. How do we know they don't have love for God? Because it hasn't translated out in how we love others, and how we serve, and how we give, how we worship and glorify God. Faith without works is useless and ineffective. This is what James is pushing towards. And what God is doing in James is he is inviting us into one of the richest, most full lives imaginable. I, I like to liken it to uh, teaching a kid to swim or uh, taking a kid out to the lake for the first time. Sometimes we'll take Sean Jones's kids or John Warren's kids up to the lake. And I'll tell you, the first time you get out to the lake with the kid, I mean, a, a lake is green and murky. It's very big. It's not like a pool. You can't touch the bottom. And the first time it's like, hey, let's hop in the water. And the kids are like, no, I want more snacks. And you say, no, you, you ate all the snacks, and you can't eat the boat, so hop in the water. And they say, they say I don't know if I want to hop in the water. And he says, you're not going to catch me. And it's like, no, no, we'll catch you, buddy. Just hop in. Get closer to the boat. I'm touching the boat. I can't get any closer. Literal conversations that have taken place, by the way. And I can't get any closer. And then finally, the kids will jump in the water. And when they do, a whole new world opens up for them. And you can't get them out of the water, off the tube, off the surfboard. They don't want to get out. And when you pull them out, they cry because they want to stay. Don't you want snacks? No! They just want to stay in the water. 
This is what God says to us. He says, love me, trust me, as I have first loved you. Pursue me. That's an invitation. It is all you want is found in this direction. Jump in. Faith is meant to lead us to trusting God, obeying God, loving God in such a way that it flows out in our life to love of others. It, this is not James saying, stop doing this and stop, start doing that because that's how you're saved. It is James saying, God has loved you. God has brought you to himself. Even in the midst of your hardest trial, God is there. And God is saying, love me, pursue me, chase me if I have pursued you. And it's supposed to result in this desire in our lives that leads to a discipline in our lives. One of the things that happens if you are in a relationship, a friendship, or a marriage, or something like that with somebody else, the longer you're in that, the more you get to know them. The more time you spend with them, the deeper that relationship goes. And the same thing is true of God. But God is an inexhaustible well, and there is always something new to marvel at with him. There's always something else we're just starting to understand. Living a life in a relationship with him puts us directly into the world in a way, once we begin to understand his grace and his goodness, that changes how we live, and it is a result of the gospel. Because there's, there's a reason why every week at Element, we bring you guys to this place of communion, because it's meant to be a reflection of what Christ has done in our lives. It helps us to understand the gospel, that we do not save ourselves, that we are a people who are lost and needy and broken, and we need God to rescue and save us, because we can't save ourselves. That our salvation is found in him and him alone. But when we understand that, that begins to change then how we live our lives. Again, what's, what's our claim? What is our claim? Is it, I belong to Jesus, I trust him? Well, James is like, that is amazing, that's great, that's a wonderful claim. So what does it look like when we start to live this out in our lives? What does it look like? And that's a good question to ask yourself today, especially when you come to communion. Communion is that place where you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. And you drink the grape juice. As a reminder, it was blood that was shed for us because we could not save ourselves. And so Christ is the one who rescues and saves us. And in that understanding, it leads us then to a place of humbleness where we trust him for his salvation. But in that humbleness, it changes us to be less myopic about our own lives and we start to look outward to what God is calling us into. Because if this has become so amazing to us and what God has done, we certainly want to live this outward. We certainly want people to understand this as well. We certainly want to live different lives. Not because the different lives save us, but because we have been saved. It's just a natural change in how we live. And it comes from understanding Christ's great rescue of us. And that's why we come to communion. It's that remembrance of that. Maybe you are here today and you have been trying to do all these things to prove to God that you love him. Because you need to start in the place of understanding that you cannot earn your salvation. It is the gift of God given to you. And all the things that we do, that we live out our lives, that's a result of the gospel. That's a result of what God has done. It doesn't save us. It shows that we have understood our salvation when we start to live for him every day in our lives. And if you need prayer, if you've been stuck in this, in this cycle of, oh, I'm so messed up, I'm so terrible, God can never love me, God can never save me, we'd love to pray with you about that. Because God does his best work when we are the most broken, as he brings us back to himself. And so if you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. There's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We're called to be a generous people. So we just become generous. 
And I encourage you to grab those sermon notes and, and take those questions that are on there and talk to you and God about those. Talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community. Walk through those questions. And honestly, as you start to look at that, what's the claim? How are we living? And what does it look like for people who don't even know Christ? When they look at us, do they see fruit that naturally comes on the trees because we are connected to Christ? What does our fruit say about us? Do we have any fruit? What does it look like? Because when we are connected to Christ, fruit naturally grows. It naturally comes. We don't force it. It's like, apple. It's It naturally comes because of how we are connected, because of how we grow, because of what Christ has done. This is why we are called to be people who rest in him, but that resting in him leads us to then living with and for him because he is good. And so let's examine our claims and let's be a people who trust who Christ is and that will change how we then live our lives because we have been saved and because we have faith. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us to remember your great love for us, that we would come to the place where we understand that we don't have to pay for our own salvation, that you are the one who has already paid it all for us. But in paying for our sin, you then call us into a life with you. And this life then looks different than anything we could have ever imagined because it is centered in who you are. Father, it is, quite frankly, astounding that you don't base our worth before you upon what we do. And so I ask, in that understanding, we would just feel so much freedom to live out worship of you in this world in ways that glorify you because we're not under a sentence of condemnation anymore. You're not looking at us to see if we do it good enough. You have simply called us to love and walk with you, to surrender all of ourselves to you. And as we do, our lives naturally bear fruit because it comes from you making a change in us as you are the one who grows us to who we are meant to be. And so, Father, this morning, teach us not to focus on the do, but on the be, who we are in you. And that we would live out our being in ways that glorify who you are. Teach us to be those who live out the great salvation that we have first received. Have us show our faith by what we do, not just with our words. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So now Mark closes the curtains. Take a couple moments and think about your own claims in your life. What claims have you even made this month, this week, today? about the things you really say you believe? And then how has that translated out into how you live? Do you really live what you say you believe? 
And that's, that's not a question to ask to say, oh, you're not, a, you're not saved or something like that. But it's a question to say, do we truly love God? Do we understand what the gospel is? Because when we understand what the gospel is, in humbleness, it naturally changes how we live out our lives in front of others. What is your faith claim? Who do you believe in your life holds ultimate truth? Who do you believe has called and set you upon the path that you're on? Let us be a people who live and trust Christ above all things. And our claim would then be lived out.